0: We talked to Jerry Elliott, Strategic Advisor and former Chief Customer Partner Officer of Cisco about the benefits of becoming a mentor, about the importance of sponsorship and how every organization benefits through a formalized, structured mentor and sponsorship program.
1: Hi, and welcome to Dear Future CRO, brought to you by Hunters and Unicorns, presented by Esther Iamu, CEO and founder of GrowthQ. And me, Kieran Bajar of Culture Crunch. Today we're absolutely thrilled to be joined by Jerry Elliott, strategic advisor and former chief customer and partner officer for Cisco, where she was a member of the executive leadership team. Jerry is also an independent board member for Whirlpool and Marketa. Jerry, welcome. Nice to be here. Thank you, Kieran. How are you, Esther?
0: So excited for this conversation! We're gonna have lots of fun. Um, Now, obviously, uh, Karen did an awesome job going through your current status and what you do today, but we we would love to hear your journey from your perspective. Um, And you know, how did you get into the profession of sales, and then why do you stay?
2: Um, Well, since this audience is supposed to be all about chief revenue officers, I'm gonna make it about the numbers. So let's talk about the numbers. I have. 42 years in technology, 42 years in this amazing business of ours that we love so much. Um, during those 42 years, I would tell you that I had seven life-changing opportunities, whether that was being a first-line manager, a second-line manager, becoming an executive, becoming a senior executive, being a part of a C-suite And, and actually joining a public board. All of those were significant milestones for me in my career. Um, I wasn't just in sales. I had six different disciplines, whether it was sales or systems engineering or strategy or consulting services, product management. Um, all of those kind of, I think helped me broaden my career and helped me be a better senior executive, whether I was going to stay in sales or not. Um, I've been on, I've worked and lived on two different continents. I've had 10 different moves in seven different cities. Um, I've had six different global roles, which is incredibly important, I think. But I think the more important opportunity was an international assignment where I lived in, in Tokyo for two years and responsible for 48 countries across Asia Pacific. That That's a certain experience that I hope we, we talk about a little more, Esther, because you know how important I think international experiences are. So, um, And I've one husband, 37 years, two children, and, um, and that's about it in terms of the numbers.
0: That's awesome. That's awesome. I love, I got to tell you, um, anytime I've heard you speak, um you either share things in threes or you will put everything in perspective in the numbers i love that and there is one husband 37 years just want to make sure we're on there
2: I had four husbands and she said oh i've been married over 40 years i beat you and i'm like four husbands it's not cumulative okay you don't get to add it yeah so
0: <laughs> i love that i love that but th- the thing i do want our listeners to hear is the fact that it wasn't just one discipline, right? You've had various experiences across different disciplines and quite frankly, in different countries around the world, in global roles versus local roles. And it's encouraging to hear for really the future revenue leaders that are listening right now, that you don't have to take one path to really succeed to the C-suite as a chief revenue officer. You can take multiple paths and all of that experience is cumulative. Would you think that, you know, would you agree that that all of that experience has been cumulative for you?
2: Oh, I absolutely agree. And and look, getting into sales as an example was a complete accident for me. Um, Number one, I wasn't, I wasn't I wasn't expecting to get into technology. I was on my way to be an international lawyer. I wanted to be a Mal That's who I wanted to be, even though I didn't know who she was at the time. I wanted to be a Mal and be into international politics. We all want to be a and, um, and I was on my way to law school before I accidentally walked into a career day fair that was happening so many years ago and um, to get a Coke because it was in the student center and somebody stopped me and said hi my name is Donnie McKenton from IBM would you like to work for IBM and i didn't even know what IBM stood for at the time and i said no why on earth would i want to work for IBM i'm i'm this is what my career is going to be i'm going to help children i'm going to to be in international politics and um and that spontaneous accidental meeting changed everything for me Um, and of course I argued with him and we had this wonderful debate about what was the best career path and what I I was on my way to get a JD MBA which was unusual back then it's it's more common now and he convinced me that working for IBM would give me a better business education than going to get my JD MBA and I didn't believe him at first but but I believe he was right that was accident number one Accident number two was I wanted to be a systems engineer. I hated sales training. I called my manager every day of the six months of sales training because with IBM, you had to train for two years before you got to call on a customer, which is amazing. Most people now get thrown into the pool, you know, a day or two after you join. With IBM, you weren't allowed to call on a customer until you were completely qualified. And I hated every moment of sales training. I called my manager every day and said, I want to come home. And she said, Jerry, if I if I bring you home, you I have to fire you. So I can't, you can't come home, my love. Um so that was accident number two because after I so I trained as a systems engineer, and it was at the end of my training, right before I was going to qualify, that they said, We love that you want to be a systems engineer. We want you to be a sales rep instead. And I, so I did it kicking and screaming, but those two accidents, those two opportunities that I was reluctantly open to, it took a little, little doing, but those two things got me on my path of, of becoming eventually a chief customer and partner officer. So lesson learned, be open to spontaneous introductions, and be open to things that you may not necessarily think you have the skill set to do. I, I hated sales. I didn't, I wanted no part of it. I thought I would not have been successful at it, but somebody saw something that a little differently than I saw it, which helped along the way. Wow.
1: That's uh, an incredible story as to how you entered the wor- world of sales. And um, I know Esther touched upon this earlier as well, but we're really keen to uh, understand what, what made you stay, Jerry?
2: I stayed because I loved helping customers achieve what I thought were their objectives. There are two types of salespeople, I always say. There's the type that absolutely loves what they sell so much, loves the product, loves the solution, loves it so much, and they understand it, and they believe in it, that they have such credibility just because of the passion that they have for that particular solution. There's another type of salesperson that they just love to sell. It doesn't matter what it is almost. They love the act of selling. They love the love, the achievement, the milestones, the ringing of the bell, the quota, the adrenaline that, that you know that they get when they they've made a hundred percent or more. Those are two different types of salespeople. I think magic actually happens when both those things cross. when you love your product so much but you also absolutely love the high that you get from helping your customers achieve their objective and your own achievement. Um, I was, I was the first, I really actually believed that what I was selling in IBM back the, the, so long ago. And then of course, Microsoft and Juniper and then Cisco. I, I only joined companies that I loved what the product was. I believed in it. I never lied to my customer I never sold them something they didn't need. If I, if it was our product and it wasn't the right fit, I told them that. Go, go, go someplace else. And I still have customers over 42 years. I've had customers for probably 30 of those years, 35 years that I've known that we grew together, that we, you know, went up the ladder together. And now they're CEOs and C suite executives. And they still trust me because they know I would never ever lie to them about what was right for them. Um, I started, so I started as that first t- type of sales person, sales leader. I ended up at the second. I ended up kind of loving the high and the adrenaline and the, I think the last count was 157 quarters that I closed or something like that. So um, I always say I age exponentially at the end of every quarter, but, but um, I loved the achievement of it.
0: So you mentioned something about you kicking and screaming, getting into sales. And there was somebody who saw something in you that you didn't see that just brought that, that really pulled you along into this profession. And it's a perfect transition into our next question around um, the importance of mentorship. And I'd love to get your perspective on overarchingly the purpose of mentorship for both the mentee and mentor, but what it's done for your career over the years.
2: Well, I told you about the seven different life-changing opportunities I've had. And, and I will say that probably six of the seven were people that tapped me on the shoulder and said, you're ready for this next role. You're ready for this opportunity. And I, in the beginning, probably half of those, I did the typical. And I, and I hate generalizing like this, but I find it true. It's the typical female reaction, which is, "I'm not ready for that. I, you know, I, I'm not ready for that." There's, I can give you five names of somebody else that's a better, you know, that's a better fit for that than I am. And um, I stopped doing that after the third or fourth time. You got to train yourself to stop, stop with that reaction. But in the, all those cases where I was tapped on the sh- shoulder, somebody said, I see more in you than you see in yourself. I think you're completely capable of this and you need to take this opportunity. And in IBM, back, back those so many years, it was very structured where how you progressed your career. You did this role, then you did this role, then you did this role, then you did this role. And... That actually probably helped back then, it, it, making the decision easier on what you had to do next. And your mentors helped you along the way. It was very simple. You, the, the ladder was, was, was laid out for you. Um, that was probably the first third of my career. The second thir- third of my career was doing, uh, taking opportunities that I thought would broaden me different different disciplines, as I said, not just sales or systems engineering. I went into product management, I went into marketing, I went into consulting and services. Mentors helped me along the way with with that because it wasn't in the same chain. Now it was a completely different disciplines. And they truly helped me think through what were the best opportunities at that time. When If you're gonna step aside, not advance, but step aside to broaden, those, those are incredibly important opportunities, and boy, mentors certainly helped with that. And then the last third of my career was the things that were heart and mind are together. We're aligned to your values, aligned to you, your passions, doing the things that you really wanna do. And of course, mentors help then. So I've been blessed with not just mentors, but sponsors, and you know the difference. Everybody knows the difference, right? The mentors are the ones that can advise you and coach you, but the sponsors are the ones that will advocate for you behind the scenes in the room. When you're not there, they'll lay a bit of their credibility on the line for you um, at at their own peril if it doesn't work out. Right. And so I was blessed to have um, not only mentors, but sponsors that, that truly, truly helped. Your question in terms of what's the benefit, th- that was the benefit to me as a mentee. As a mentor, um, there are several benefits. There, there are, number one, depending upon who you choose, and you really have to choose wisely. This is a relationship, it's a symbiotic relationship. It's not one that can happen accidentally. I think it's one that has to be earned. There, you can't walk up to somebody that you don't even know or a complete stranger and ask them to be your mentor. You have to earn the opportunity to be that mentee. And that mentor has to see something in you that, that earns the, the right to, to have you, quite frankly, as a mentor. Um, so it's symbiotic. There, there has to be some commonality. There has to be some synergy between the two of you for it to be beneficial, both to the mentor and the mentee. From a mentor perspective, it can be the relationship, um, just the relationship itself. It can be the professional relationship itself. It can be where that mentee is in the business so that you can get an an insight into what's happening at that particular level uh, that you wouldn't know based upon the level that the mentor is. Um, it can be a, a window into your own leadership capabilities and, and a mirror back to how effective you truly are as a leader or a mentor. So it, it's, um, it's a valuable relationship. It's not for the faint of heart, quite frankly. Uh, I, I think it should be exclusive there. You can't, I don't think you can be effective if you had 10 mentees And you were spread so thin. I think you have to choose wisely and really give it your all. I think a lot of pressure is on the mentee. The way that I mentored was I left it to my mentee to decide how they would use the time. And some were very different. Some were, I'd like to make this a casual relationship. I I'd like it to be informal. I'm going to, I'm going to, it's going to be once a quarter and it's going to be a half an hour and it's going to be a bit of a free for all. And there's no agenda set. And there are some mentees where it was, this is, this is how we're going to spend the time. Here's the agenda. Here's what I want to talk about. Very different personalities, very different situations, both valuable, but it's up to the mentee to decide how they use that precious time that the mentor will give them. So a lot of pressure on the mentee.
1: It's great hearing your insight, Jerry, regarding mentoring as the mentor and also as the mentee. And just circling back, we touched upon um, your experience in, in sponsorship and why it's so incredible. This is something that Esther and I talk about in great depth, but really keen to understand your thoughts as to how sponsorship can become more normalized in your opinion normal i don't know if it's it, i don't know
2: i don't know if it can become normalized as i said because i think it's an opportunity that has to be earned i think you have to see the person in action you have to see something in them that they don't see in themselves and you have to to decide that that person has incredible potential and they deserve an opportunity to, to advocate for them. And so that's not something that can be programmatized, I don't think. I think it's sort of like finding your partner, you know? It's, it's, it's one of those that it just has to happen. Um, Esther was, I sponsored Esther. I saw in Esther what I don't think she saw in herself, this incredibly bright, articulate, go getter who was gonna set the world on fire, right? That's what I see in Esther. And and so I chose to be Esther's sponsor. You didn't ask me. I chose to be Esther's sponsor. And so I don't I don't think it can be normalized. I don't think you should assume that that you're going to get a sponsor as an example. I think you I think once you have you know that person and you have you believe you've shown what you're capable of doing and and that you've done the best work you possibly can and you believe that you can go further then i think you can have a a a, a strong conversation about you wanting sponsorship and asking somebody who that sponsor should be it may not be the person you think it should be they may have a different point of view in terms of the best sponsor for you. Um, so it's its a a—it's a process, but I think it's a process that has to, has to be
0: earned. Yeah, yeah, great. I'm flattered and so honored um, by you sharing that comment, Jerry. Are you in sales or looking to start a career in sales? Join our community at growth.co. For those looking to hire, let us help you build your talent bench. Create a profile at growthq.co. Um, you know, I um, I have to pivot to this next question, which is really now focused on that same topic and what it specifically means to leaders when that mentorship and sponsorship is having is happening within the organization. So there was a Forrester study that um, talked about the importance of purposeful diversity, equity and inclusion practices within sales, truly affecting the performance of sales teams. One in particular that stood out to me was they measured teams that had these practices like mentorship, like employee networks and connection and measured how they affected their sales performance. And they saw that those that had leading programs and intentional programs um saw um lead to opportunity closure at 54% whereas those with lagging programs that didn't really have intentional pro- uh, uh like mentorship programs for example saw lead to opportunity conversion rates of 26% um and you know i'm hearing that and i'm thinking as a leader goodness I'd want to make sure we have those, those programs or mentorship or connection things happening in my organization outside of my leadership. I'd love to get your perspective on what you've seen across the various roles that you've had as a leader and in your organization. Have you seen things like mentorship or, or other diversity or equity and inclusion programs really affect the success of your, your teams and the performance of your sales teams?
2: I believe absolutely. And, but it's taken all different forms. Um, It's either been spontaneous and organic and just happened, or it's been as you, as you stated in the Forrester study, something where an organization says, uh, building people's fullest potential is incredibly important, regardless of diversity but it's even more important because of the value of diversity and we all know that diverse teams are just better performing teams it's it is i don't know how many more studies we need to show that diversity helps the bottom line it does and so now you if you look at a mentor program and you say it can happen spontaneously it can happen organically but it may not happen spontaneously and organically for everyone. And so we need to make sure that we, we get to all aspects of the organization. We get to all races, all gender, all, all walks of life, all economic situations, whatever it is, all sexual pers- persuasions. We want to make sure that no one is left behind. And the only way to ensure that is to formalize it. And to make it a structured program, and that's where I think it it is brilliant. Um, I now there's always an inner uh, organic piece of that program that I think you can't overly structure it. You can't make it so. And I've seen those fail miserably, where it's this is how we're going to do it, and you two are going to be a pair, and you're going to like it. You're going to love that relationship, whether you do or not. Kind of that doesn't work. You have to. You have to create a program and a structure where where there is that process of finding each the mentor and the mentee or the sponsor and the sponsoree in an organic way where it makes sense to i always when i chose a mentor as an example a mentee as an example i always said there were you know three things i looked for they had to be geographically attractive because i'm sorry it's really hard mentoring somebody In in 18 time zones away from you. Uh, There had to be some similarities between the two folks. It might be personality. It might be where they were in their career. Did I have something that I felt like I could offer them? And the mentee had to understand what their responsibilities were, right? Those were the three things. And I think programs should think about what are the three things that are going to put the right mentors and mentees together? It may not be my three. It might, it might be you know somebody else's three. But thinking through that process, I think is is incredibly important to the program itself. So it's a balance, like everything else. You know, you can't go it to extremes. It can't be too informal. It can't be too formal. It has to be something that is natural but structured enough to really ensure that you're getting the result that you want.
0: That was definitely not meant to be a commercial for GrowthQ, but it was the perfect commercial for GrowthQ. Let's just call it. I mean, you just mentioned, right? Having a tiny bit, just enough, a touch of structure, of location, of personality, and then really owning what is this relationship going to be. And that's exactly what we purposely do for all of our growth queue matches, right? Is understanding their personalities and is there a match? Understanding what the mentor has to give and what the mentee is looking for. And then let's really help set you up with the right expectations of how to make this relationship um, as fruitful as possible. So um, I just love that. We're gonna cut that and record all the things. (laughs) That was awesome.
1: (laughs) So cool. So yeah, we've heard, um, you know, we've talked about the pros of, of a diverse team, right? But can we just pivot towards um, understanding your thoughts and experience re- with regards to a diverse interview panels? You know, what are your thoughts with that? What's been your experience?
2: Well, diverse interview panels is just one one aspect of the process itself, right? All hiring, you should yeah. make sure that you have diverse slate of candidates to begin with. And that I think everybody yeah. pivoted on that first, you know, oh, oh yes, we, we, we are serious about diversity and we make sure that there, we always have a slate of candidates that are diverse. Well, that's just one, one part of the process. You better make sure yeah. that you have a diverse slate of interviews as well, interviewers as well, because that diverse candidate better see their representation um, in that company, whether it's on the leadership level or at a minimum the people that are that are interviewing them. Um, and you have to think about i I think the interview process itself has to be incredibly structured. I'm not a fan of interview processes where you know, this person asked, this interviewer asked this set of questions and this interviewer asked a completely different set of questions and this interviewer asked a third completely different set of questions. I'm of the principle that there should be a majority of the questions that are exactly the same by, by, for all the candidates and by, for all the interviewers and then there should be a smaller percentage of the questions that should be related to perhaps the expertise of that interviewer um, so that they can go a little deeper with the candidate itself. Why do I say that? I think that's the great equalizer because when the interviewers come back and if they've all had different, asked different questions and gotten different answers, of course, because the questions have weren't the same how do you have a fair conversation about who the best candidate is? I think you have to ask the same majority of the same questions so that you can all come back in the room and say, who answered that question the best and evaluate on that. And, and so to me, it levels the playing field more and it's a nuance, but I think it's an incredibly important nuance for for the process to be fair for all those candidates and to have a productive conversation based on data and real answers to questions versus in, you know what you suppose the the answer to the question might have been that you didn't pose
0: I love I love the way you've put this because you're breaking down inclusive hiring from a very different perspective it's not just let's get diverse candidates to the table to interview let's get diverse interviewers to interview but if the taxonomy for how we're measuring the talent isn't the same our efforts kind of go in vain there right um i love that idea of um creating that structure listeners you heard it first here um but but a certain percentage of those questions being the same and a certain ones coming from the perspective of the expertise of the interviewer. Yeah. I love that. I love that. Um, you know, to dive specifically into this any further, have you found certain practices in particular that maybe help, um, further remove, um, unconscious bias or any stories where you've particularly seen that, um, uh, work with your teams, anything you particularly remember where where it's worked with your teams in particular?
2: I think the most, so all diversity training, I think, is incredibly important. Um, dangerous, if not done well. I think diversity training should be conducted by professionals who truly understand the imp- number, not only the importance of the training itself, but the, but but what the, the training can uncover. I have been in diversity training sessions in now four different companies. And in each case, there has been breakthrough conversations that were incredibly personal. Everybody always goes back to what does this mean for them and where they have seen it or how they've experienced it. And that it is, it is such a powerful conversation. It's the reason why I think it's not for amateurs. So, number one, if you are a company that is serious about ensuring that unconscious bias doesn't happen in your organization, get some professional help. Don't try to do this on your own. That's number one. Number two, um, I think the best training has always been around what our dear friend Brian Stevenson from Equal Justice Initiative would call proximity. Proximity training or proximity experiences, I think, matter. Proximity being get one-to-one with that person, get up close and personal, understand how people have experienced unconscious bias and put yourself in their shoes and the only way to do that you can't read about it you can't you have to see it and you have to hear it for yourself and and you can do that one-on-one i have done a million proximity meetings where i've just asked my my team to i want to i want to talk one-on-one with diverse folks in my organization diversity of all aspects not just race but all aspects, because I want to know what it feels like to be you in this company. What does that feel like? What is your, what is your experience been? And those conversations have been incredibly powerful. Having fishbowl conversations where we brought in a slate of folks that all different walks of life, and we've, we've put them together so that they can chat with each other. And we have w- watched the conversation. As an executive team, we watched the in the room, same room, we watched the conversation, we listened to their experiences, and then we asked them to watch us. We then go in the middle of the room and we have a conversation about what we just heard. Incredibly powerful. Those have been, to me, the most effective conversations, again, conducted by professionals who understand how to how to make sure that it stays productive, but thoughtful and deep and not bullshit, right? Not the stuff everybody wants to hear, but the real stuff that's happening. And then to facilitate, what do you do about it? It's one thing to then have the proximity conversation in whatever form, and then you say, well, boy, that, that's tough. That was tough. And, and you walk away and nothing changes. So you, have, you need help to help you then say, what do you do about what you just heard? Because it's important to react to it in the right way. Um, and so get some help, quite frankly. And, and every process can work. And it may depend on the org- your, your organization, your culture, your set of values on what's the right way to, to get that help, but seek professionals and and do something about it. When you've gone through the process and you've learned what needs to change, you better do something about it. There's nothing worse than understanding what the issues are and then walking away and not trying to fix them.
1: Wise words, <laughs> Jerry. You talked earlier on, actually, about your um, plethora of experiences and different roles, and um, I'd really like to revisit that. In your opinion, you know, what have been the most impactful um, to your career in terms of structured job rotations? Let's let's start there.
2: Well, I said that my career has been a third, a third, a third and the first third couldn't have been any more structured in terms of this is what you did. Um, and there was some freedom associated with it. I didn't have to think about it. You know. I didn't, have to, I didn't have to angst about what the next role would be. So I was lucky in that regard. Other companies may not be that structured and so you might have to fend for yourself um, with what that next role would have been. I thought some of that structure was unnecessary at the time. Why take me out of a customer facing role if the most important thing are our customers and I want to be customer facing. I understood why they did. That was a a grooming mechanism, but I thought it was unnecessary. And we did change it years later to say that you could advance your career staying in front of a customer, not necessarily having to pivot out of it. Um, so structured rotations, I think a better idea is something that I learned from Meg Whitman, who she used to do this with her direct reports. She would shake up the chairs in her, with her direct reports on a regular basis. She would say, okay, you, well, you're, you're our CMO. Well, guess what? You're now going to be our CRO and you're our chief legal officer. And well, well, guess what? You're now going to be our government affairs person." She would shake it up on a regular basis and nothing to do with quite frankly, performance in her mind, it meant, it was a way of ensuring that her leadership team sat in different chairs, understood different perspectives, didn't hold on to sacred cows. I think she told me that she used to tell, oh no, Andrea Young, who is the CEO of Avon, used to say that on a Friday, she would tell her her direct report team that they were fired that they should put their badge in a bucket as they were leaving Friday morning but that they should come back on Monday. And so they would got fired on a Friday, put their badges in the bucket and on Monday morning she would say, "Okay, you're all rehired. You can take your badges out of the bucket, but you're you are new to this role. Same role that they were in on Friday, but they've been fired on Friday." You're new to the role. There are no more sacred cows. You should just think about how you coming into this role with a fresh set of eyes, what you would do differently. And it's a silly exercise, but it's one that just gives you perspective of how would you, how would you do it? And I think of that structured rotation the same way, the Meg structured rotation. I love that because I actually think it makes you fresh and um, keeps you spontaneous.
0: Uh, yeah, I, I love both of those perspectives, right? They're two different ones, Kieran, right? There, there's one which is, you know, let's let's musical chairs this a little bit. So, hey, everybody, you know, you were in product, you're now going to be marketing. You're in marketing, now you're going to go lead our revenue teams. You're in, right? Um, so that being one aspect. But then the other, and I think it's incredibly powerful, of on a Friday, turn in your badge, you're all done, you've been fired, Monday, you will be rehired and you get in Monday and look at your business with, a fresh, uh, with fresh eyes. It's that go off for the holiday and come back in the new year feeling, new year, new me um, feeling, but that's incredibly powerful.
2: And I remember now why Andrea said that she did that because she, as she was the CEO of Avon and she had been the CEO of Avon for 12 years, I think at the time and, and had been very successful, but then went through a period where it was, she wasn't as successful or the business wasn't as successful. And she did that purposefully because she felt that she would hold on to her sacred cows. You know, this was all on my watch. And would I would I do something differently? And so she did that exercise to give her herself and her team freedom to look at things with a fresh set of eyes. So I, I just love that exercise. And I've done it a couple of times. It freaks your teams out, by the way.
0: <laughs> Gotta love that. Well, this um, last question, um, as Karen always calls me out because I get so pumped about this last question. Um, this this last question is exactly why we're here and why we do this. I think to, you know, 21-year-old Esther stepping into her first uh, role taking on a quota and looking around and thinking, oh my goodness, what did I just sign up to do? But what is the path going to look like? And quite frankly, Jerry, you've lived this path. And so I would love for you to share to the to the future CROs that are listening to this conversation, whether they're earlier in their career or their mid-career or, or just about to get into that potential CRO role. If you could answer this question, dear future CRO, and give that almost love letter to that listener, what would you, how would you answer that sentence?
2: Oh, Lordy. Dear future CRO, forget the R. And number one, I tell you, forget the R. And I, by the way, I hate the title. No disrespect. But I, I never had the CRO title, never wanted the CRO title. I was, I was hired in for the CRO job but the first thing I did was we're changing this title because you have to remember where the revenue comes from. The revenue comes from your customers. And if you're gonna focus on the dollar versus focus on that customer or that partner, regardless of what your distribution model is, that consumer, it could be an enterprise, it could be consumer, it could be partnerships, you better focus on them or that revenue, that growth will never come. I chose to be chief customer officer. I chose to be chief customer and partner officer. I never wanted a chief growth officer or chief revenue officer title because I thought it was the wrong emphasis. So forget the R. Go focus on your customers. Go make them successful. Go ensure that they trust you, whether you're just starting out in that first quota role. Think about those customers make sure that they that they are first and foremost i used to say customers first your unit the company second your unit third you personally a distant distant fourth if you just think about those priorities then then you'll be successful so forget the r
1: it's so refreshing to hear that perspective which is just actually make it not a, not about you but make it about the customer and you you know focus on them focus on their trajectory their development and then yours yours will follow in ever to be anyway if you do if you do the job well which clearly you have done over and over again that's uh I love that one thank you for sharing. Yep. <laughs> Jerry, on behalf of Esther and I, thank you so much for joining us today. And actually not just on behalf of Esther and I, on behalf of all of our viewers and the listeners out there who uh, I know will have found this conversation so incredibly insightful, informative, and quite frankly, moving as well. To all of our viewers and listeners, if you've enjoyed this conversation, please show some love. Please hit the like, share and subscribe button to hear more. From Growth Q and Culture Crunch as part of the Dear CRO series. Although you can drop the R, as Jerry has said. <laughs> um, so, Jerry, once again, thank you so much for joining us. Esther, until next time, it's been a pleasure as always. And to our viewers and listening uh, and listeners, sorry, and to our viewers and listeners, thanks so much for joining, and we look forward to seeing you next time. Until then, take care. Bye-bye.
0: I'm gonna go to